sermon text this morning comes from Acts chapter 27 into chapter 28, and if you look on your bulletin, you'll know, you know it's a long one, it just says Pew Bible. Uh, so go ahead and take a Bible out, using the Pew Bible, it's page 936, if you would turn to Acts chapter 27, we're looking at 27 and the first 10 verses of chapter 28, we're finishing up our study on the book of Acts. Well, we've seen throughout this time that God is on a mission. Uh, as we see the end coming of Paul's ministry, we see that God's on a mission even in hopelessness that leads to deliverance. So what I'm going to do is read the first verse of 27 and then go to verse 8, or verse 9, I'm sorry. So verse 1 and then verse 9, and I'm going to read from there. Acts chapter 27 I'm about to read to you, it's God's word. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now we go to verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island named Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all our hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. And a little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it began to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had disease also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Thus far in God's holy, complete, perfect word, let's pray and ask that he might bless the reading, the hearing, the teaching of it this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word that is true and powerful. And so we ask now that that powerful word would affect us in a mighty way. And so, Lord, would you open up our minds, unclog our ears, soften our hearts to the power of that word, help us to block out the distractions of this world for just a moment so that we might be changed by you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are certain patterns in life we just come to, uh, come to expect. Like right now, it's school year, so school day mornings, you know, getting ready, breakfast, leaving, that's, like, that's a pattern that seems to be on autopilot right now. Uh, even the really big moments in life, they have a pattern about them, don't they? Like a wedding. Take a wedding, for example. You have a wedding planner, and the wedding planner knows what to do. They know that there's a pattern. This is where you're to stand. This is when you walk. This is where you look. It's all planned out. It all follows the same pattern. 
We're accustomed to patterns. And there's a pattern that we all experience, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, there is a pattern of things going well in our lives, things falling apart, things feeling hopeless, and then some sort of deliverance. That's just a pattern we all go through. And if you look through the Bible, even to the very beginning, this is the pattern we see from beginning to end. In the garden, does this pattern not happen? Things going great? Things falling apart? Hopelessness? Deliverance? It's something we see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. We even see this pattern in the life of Jesus as he performs miracle upon miracle. And then he's met with a situation that appears to be hopeless. He is killed. And then what happens? The greatest hope, the greatest deliverance of resurrection. We see this pattern, hopelessness to deliverance, three times in our passage this morning. And each time, that hopelessness is brought on by some different ideal. Something different. Control, fear, and justice. So that's what I want us to look at this morning, that God's mission, it actually takes us through hopelessness into deliverance, and that hopelessness happens often when we lose control, fear takes over, and we have a skewed view of justice. These are just examples of this pattern. But that is what we have in our text this morning. So let's first look at this loss of control, which we see in the first 26 verses. So as you look there, let's just remember what has happened thus far. Paul has been arrested, and he's a Roman citizen, so he appeals to be heard by Caesar, which means he gets to go to Rome, the place he's been trying to go to for all of these years. Finally, he gets to go, but as a prisoner. At the end of chapter 26, Paul is telling his story of becoming a, a believer to King Agrippa, ending with King Agrippa saying to Festus, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. This man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, in reality, that reasoning is a bit of a cop-out. But what it does is send Paul on his way to Rome, the very place he has wanted to go for so long to visit churches. How will Paul get to Rome? Well, we see here in the first few verses, by boat. The journey's about 500 miles we see in verse 1 that Paul is put in the care of a centurion of the Augustan guard named Julius. This would be the imperial army's figure that would escort Paul, his chaperone, because getting to Rome is not just, hey, you get on the next flight and you'll see in Rome. No, it's you have to go from different port to different port. And when you get to that port, you have to attempt to board another ship that's somehow heading in the right direction. That's exactly what we see in the first eight verses as Luke describes a running commentary of the ports that they have been sailing to and from. Now, two things to, to quickly note. The first is that Paul is not seen as a threat by Julius. How do, how do we see that? Well, verse 3 says that Julius treats Paul kindly, so much so that he allows Paul to go and have visits when he goes to a port where he's familiar with the town, where he has friends. Second thing is that they would board different boats along the way. Now, that, that sounds pretty normal, kind of get that from what we've seen so far. But they would arrive for a, a, at a place, and they would just wait for a boat headed to Rome. Can you imagine how long that would take? That'd be awful. You're sat in an airport for like three hours, your flight's canceled, that feeling. Imagine that, being on a boat, six weeks. you feel great. But the boat they finally board in verse 6, look there. It's a grain boat heading 
for Italy. A grain boat would be a common occurrence in this area. Egypt is the main supplier of wheat for Rome, and such ships, the historian Josephus lets us know, would be given protection by Rome and even insured by the empire because that wheat was so important to them, to their lifestyle, to, their, to, to not starving. Okay, so everything seems to be going fine for Paul and Julius. It's taking a while. Then we get to verses 7 and 8. Luke writes, We sailed slowly for a number of days. We arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lycia. We might look at this and say, okay, so they're delayed a bit. Big deal. Well, the big deal is seen in verse 9. The delays have cost them. Look at verse 9. Since much time had passed, that is, since it had taken forever because of the wind, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. The fast was already over. That phrase, the fast, it's referring to the Day of Atonement fast, which is a certain time in the year. It means that the time of the year now is probably late September, early October. And in this era, sailing between the months of November and February didn't happen. It was considered to be too dangerous. You did not sail. If you were to look at a map, you would see this danger starting because they were not taking the normal route uh, to Rome. They were hugging the coastline, keeping close to the ports in case of a wind that would come and knock them out. They, came close to, they were staying close to the land so they could, they could dock in case if anything happened. What does Paul do? Have you ever heard of backseat driving? I'm sure you have. Uh, this is Paul backseat sailing right here. And he offers his advice as a man who has spent a lot of time on boats. His advice is, let's stay here for the next few months. Let's ride out this rough season here, or else we will face untold hardship. We look at verse 11 and see more attention is given, though, to the pilot and the owner of the ship than Paul. And we think to ourselves, this seems reasonable. That is their job, after all. They know what they're doing. And so they set sail for a harbor, Phoenix, about 50 miles west. Okay, so we, we've taken now the time to set the stage. We see the danger is out there. It's late in the season. We see the pilot has decided to press on. Now we get to the action. Verses 13 through 26. Just look at verse 13 for a moment. The south wind blew gently. It's almost as if things were back on track. That phrase in verse, th- that, that phrase in verse 13 is so good. Look at it. Isn't it? Supposing that they've obtained their purpose. Supposing that the situation finally was under control. It's nice, isn't it? But then verse 14 happens. A tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. I don't know if you've ever experienced a northeaster, since we're in the southeast. It's not common for us to have a northeaster. But it's this driving wind and rain. It is a misery. It makes it almost impossible to do daily tasks And that's on land. Imagine being in a northeaster and on a boat. Not only is it miserable, but a northeaster, when trying to sail west, would take control over the ship. It would be impossible to turn the bow into the wind. So to summarize verses 14 and 15 another way, this northeaster is saying to the pilot, I am the captain now. I'm in control. 
We see in the next few verses that the crew does everything they can to try and secure the boat from capsizing or running ashore. And we are given just these, these descriptions that just show how out of control things really are for them. Verse 17, they fear they would run aground and were driven along. They were driven. Verse 18, they were violently storm-tossed to the point where they throw cargo overboard. Verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for days. What do you think they used to navigate in those times? The GPS? That was the GPS. They lack control over their future. They lack control over their safety. They lack control over their navigation and direction. It has been three days of being in the middle of wind and rain without being able to tell where they are. Can you imagine it now? They are anxious. Look at the beginning of verse 21. They have been without food for a long time. Now that doesn't mean that there's no food on board. What are we going to do? They're on a boat that has lots of food. In fact, they're on a boat that is only carrying food. Do you see that? They're so overwhelmed by the tossing of the waves. They're so overwhelmed about the fear of what is going to happen to them. They're so overwhelmed that they have no control over the situation. They can't even eat what is right next to them. And it drives them to what feeling? Look at the end of verse 20. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned no hope left no control over the situation they are hopeless you ever lose control over a situation and feel just hopeless that feeling of what do i do what could i do how do i regain control what when things don't go as we plan, we tend to panic. That's just a pattern we face. Think about Paul in his earlier life. We've heard a bunch of his conversion story time and time again. He retells it. But think about his conversion story. When did he lose control? When he was walking on the road to Damascus and he's blinded by Jesus and he is told to go and wait. Blinded. That might make your world turn upside down, right? That might take away your sense of being in control. Blinded. How did he respond? Three days, no food or drink, and then his sight is restored by Ananias. His life changed from one who is in control of persecuting Christians to being at the mercy and grace of Jesus. Paul stands up, we see, in the middle of verse 21. He provides news to this hopeless crew. He starts by saying this, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now to us, it might seem like Paul is stating the obvious, kind of like, if only someone would have listened to Paul. That's not what is being presented exactly here. Paul is stating this to persuade them to consider what he has to say next. Look what he says in verses 22 through 26. First, take heart. Don't give up hope. Why? Because there will be no more injury and loss for us, for us men on board the ship. Now, the same can't be said for the ship. It can be for us. 
Why does he say this? Look at verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I just want to point out a few things here in these verses. First, notice how Paul talks to these non-Jewish, non-Christian, unbelieving sailors, sailors about God. Paul's confidence why can I say take heart? It comes from who? The God to whom I belong. The God to whom I worship. That's interesting, isn't it? Especially when you consider that in this time, pagans worshipped all types of gods. Pagans didn't mean you didn't believe in anything. It means you worshipped pretty much anything. Don't you think the sailors were calling out to whatever god they could? But Paul says, no, 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 no. This my God, the one I worship, the one to whom I belong, he owns me. You know what that means? He is my king. He is my ruler. He has told me this. And so Paul is making it clear. I belong to a king, a ruler, who controls even the winds and the sea. And that king says that I must stand before Caesar, that it is going to happen. This is what he has called me to do. It's a calling that was given by God. Remember back in Acts 19 and verse 21, it says Paul resolved in the Spirit to say, I must go to Rome. And even in chapter 23, verse 11, when Paul goes before the council to explain what he is doing in Jerusalem, there's a mob trying to kill him. Do you remember what he says in verse 11? The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul is saying to these men, trust me, my God, my King, will have me in Rome. And if you stay with me, you will live. For I have a mission, and the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship will make it so. That's confidence right there. Do you belong to this God this morning? If not, do you have confidence in your God? And as Christians, we need to ask this as well. Do we have this type of confidence in God, our King, this morning? Because often we don't live like it. I think the struggle Christians have is that they have confidence, but often that confidence has this hidden caveat attached to it we don't like to talk about. I have confidence, but my confidence means I also don't want to suffer as I work through my issues. We don't want to suffer as we work through those hopeless times. But notice this. Paul has confidence in a hopeless time, but he also, he's still going to suffer with everyone, isn't he? He's still in that boat going through that northeaster. Paul is not acting in some divine way here. You know, we read earlier about Jesus in the boat. What's the difference between Paul and Jesus in this situation, in a storm, in a boat? Jesus can calm the winds and the sea. Paul says, we're just not going to die. This boat will, but we're not going to die. There's a difference. So what do we make of this in terms of application? Well, I think we have to understand and believe this, that there is only one person in control in this story, and it's not Paul. 
and there's only one person in control of your story, and of mine. And it's not you, and it's not me. And that's great. That is amazing news, because our natural tendency, if we were in control, would be what? To protect ourselves from discomfort and pain. To not go through anything hopeless. To not go through anything painful. I would put myself through sheer luxury at the expense of y'all. Y'all would do it too. Can you imagine the pain that would come to everyone else if you were in control, if I were in control, and yet, here's the amazing thing about the gospel. The one who is in control, the one to whom I belong and Paul belongs, what does he do? He sent his son to live in luxury. He sends his son to become man and suffer and bleed and die for you and me. That's the God to whom we belong. That's the God who we can have confidence in. That is the God who is in control and rules with perfect mercy and perfect grace and perfect justice. And that God didn't just die, but he rose again and he rules. He is king at the right hand of God the Father. Do you have confidence in him this morning that he loves you so much that he came and died for you? Do you believe that he is in control? Let's move to our second pattern, the eventual shipwreck, where we see the pattern of hopelessness and then deliverance by fear. Set in verses 27 through 44. Notice as you look there that first it's day 14. 14 is two weeks. It's a long time to be uh, on a boat let alone on a boat being tossed by a northeaster. And finally, the sailors think they might be near land, and so they take a sounding, that is, they take a measuring of water depth, and uh, they would throw a line with a lead weight and throw it overboard, and they'd record how deep it is, and they would start seeing, hey, it's getting a little, it's a little shallower, a little shallower. But then they think, oh no, we might be close to crashing the bottom of the boat into the rocks. And so they take precautions. But land is near. Isn't this great? Not quite. The wind is still driving the boat. And it has been 14 days of nerves and fear. Look what happened starting in verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, things are going a little rough. And they see a glimpse of land and they think, this is it. This is our opportunity to get out of here. You can picture it, can't you? These sailors just nonchalantly like whistling, hey, we're going to lower us. Guys, we're just going to go down. We're going to check on the anchors, make sure nothing's out of line. See in a little bit. The problem for them would be this. They would be going away from Paul, the one to whom God has promised to protect and protect the lives of all those who are with him. And it's in the middle of the night. Why would you ever want to leave that situation, that promise? Well, the first couple of words in verse 20, 29 tell us, don't they? Fear. Fear makes you do crazy things. Fear makes you do irrational things, desperate things, doesn't it? 
Luckily, Paul sees what is happening and tells the centurion that unless these men stay in the boat, you will not be saved. And so he calls them back and he cuts the lifeboats off from the ship, kind of like generals would burn their boats upon landing on a new land. There's no going back. And notice what Paul does next. He doesn't just berate these soldiers for trying to flee. No, no, no. He speaks again saying, men, it's been 14 days. And you are continuing in suspense and without food. You've been eaten up with fear. You are wasting away. This is kind of near the Greek area. So you can imagine a Greek mother going, eat, eat. You need your strength. And then Paul says something very interesting. He says, eat. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That's a saying that is used really all throughout the Bible. 1 Samuel says it of Jonathan. We see it in Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts. It's actually the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong uh, to God, body and soul. And it says this later on. He says, he also preserves me in such a way that what? Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Hmm. What a hope to proclaim. The very first question, what a hope to proclaim in times of fear. It's the same hope that Paul is giving to these men after 14 days of being just eaten up with anxiety. He proclaims this, do not fear, God is with you. And what does he do? Look at verses 35 and 36. He doesn't just say, eat something, you look terrible. He takes bread to give thanks to God and he breaks it and begins to eat. Now, I I don't think this is an allusion to the Lord's Supper. And there are reasons for that and most of church history uh, is in that camp as well. But we can't deny that this, as Daryl Bach puts it, this echoes of such a meal and a sense that this is a sacred moment. Because God will deliver them as Paul has said God would. That this is not a normal meal because under normal circumstances they would all die at sea. That this is a meal that has a profound effect on the 276 sailors aboard that ship. That they indeed would be strengthened with fear. Look at verse 35. They would be strengthened against their fear. Look at verse 35. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship. They threw out the wheat into the sea. Their bodies are strengthened with the food. Their souls are strengthened and encouraged. And that they have such confidence that the God to whom Paul belongs will save them so much so they take the rest of the food and they throw it away. Y'all, where do you go with your fear? Where do you go when you haven't been able to eat for days? You haven't slept. And you're just worn out mind, body, and soul. The only place to go is to the one who is in control. Who rules so powerfully that not a hair can fall from your head unless he wills it. And yet how tough that is, especially when you consider our reading earlier that the very disciples of Jesus are in a boat with Jesus in a storm, maybe, maybe a little northeaster, comes upon them and they lose hope and they cry out saying, Lord, do you not care we are perishing? You ever say that? Don't you care that I'm dying here? Don't you care that I'm in such a difficult situation? I don't know what to do. There is no right answer, it seems. 
Notice Jesus' response to those moments where we feel hopeless and we cry out to Jesus. He doesn't say, how dare you? You have no faith. He didn't say that. What does he say? Oh, you of little faith. And then he calms the storm. He delivers them. And they marvel at him. The people who walked with Jesus cried out in fear. They cried out with hopelessness, and he delivers them. Y'all, in the moments of fear in our lives, you can cry out to Jesus. That's part of the pattern of the Christian life. Because we know he has ultimately delivered us, and he will deliver us time and time again in this life. That's where we have to go with our fears. Final pattern I want us to look at comes in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. At this point, the ship crashed. There's a moment of panic from one soldier who wanted to kill the prisoners, so uh, he won't be having any liability if they escape. And that's thwarted by the centurion. And those who could swim swam to shore. Those of us who can't swim, they cling to a piece of wood, driftwood, they paddle themselves in. Great. And the place they land, uh, we find out, is called Malta. Now, two facts about Malta. Malta is a tiny island in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. This is like finding a needle in the haystack. It's a miracle. Second thing about Malta is its name. Paul doesn't make a big deal about its name, but it means this, refuge. And we can see how this place acts as a refuge for these men who have faced weeks of tossing and turning on the sea. We see in verse 2, they're met with unusual kindness. The locals set up these campfires for these shell-shocked looking men, and as Paul goes to get more wood for the fire, the worst possible thing I could ever imagine happens. A viper bites you. That's, that's it. You know what? It's been a good run. I just give up right there. Um, a viper comes out from a bundle of sticks, clamps down on his hand. Now, can you imagine, and Luke does this, he writes from the, the point of view of the people, the Maltese, not the dogs, the people. Uh, he, can you imagine being one of those native people at this point? They don't know all that Paul has been saying to these sailors, that God has called him to Rome, that he must meet with Caesar. They don't know these things. They just think this guy must, he just survived a shipwreck. But he couldn't escape the judgment he deserved. No, no, no. They know what a snake bite means for a human. Look at verse 4. Look at the assumptions they make. No doubt this man is a murderer. Justice has not allowed him to live. You know justice they're talking about? They're talking about a Roman mythology goddess. Justice is more than just the ideal of right and wrong. It's this goddess of Roman mythology, the goddess that we have taken and used in our court systems, and we made, it, made her into a statue where she's blindfolded, she's got the weight, the scales. They say, ah, justice hasn't allowed this man to live. He deserves death. He was a murderer. That's why this is happening to him. He doesn't deserve the hope of having a second chance. When you think about it, we seem to have the same thought process of justice towards others uh, as these islanders, don't we? We say grace for everybody, yeah, yeah. 
but we see something happen, though, in reality. We say, that, that person is hopeless. They deserve what they get. You reap what you sow. How often do we condemn someone as hopeless? Justice has not allowed them to escape. One pastor preached at a sermon this summer at our denomination's yearly gathering, our general assembly, and he said it like this. This is what we are like. Karma for you, grace for me. When the truth is that we all deserve justice and condemnation, don't we? We all fall short of the glory of God, and yet what do we receive? Condemnation? No, the, no we hear there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But why then do we pronounce condemnation on others? What does Paul do? He shakes his hand. He says, get, get off me. And look at verse 6. As they wait for his arm, his body to swell up with poison and wait and wait and wait, when they realize nothing's going to happen, what happens? They change their mind. They change their mind and they said, this man is a god. That's quite the pendulum swing. He's a murderer. He is God. That's a little, it's a little dramatic. Now, Paul doesn't deny, why doesn't Paul deny us again? Well, Luke is writing from the perspective, again, of these natives. He's not giving us every thought of Paul, every reaction. And there, he's there for three months. No doubt he probably is proclaiming the gospel to them. But the point we are to see, though, is this, that even these people, these pagan God-believing islanders, their understanding of justice was totally flipped totally debunked how they saw that this man had a hope fixed on a god who would not let him be shaken from his mission that nothing could separate him from that that he could face disillusionment and suffering and hopelessness and a viper yet he endures in deliverance their justice had no match for his god their understanding of hopelessness had no concept, had no idea what real deliverance was like. That's what this pattern shows us time and time again, that we aren't called as Christians to run from hopelessness. We're called to embrace it and realize that it is the pattern of the Christian life, that it is the way in which we more and more are able to identify with Jesus in his death, the hopelessness, and in his resurrection, deliverance. Paul Miller says it like this, Paul's writing of the normal Christian life is a reenacting of Jesus' death and resurrection that resets our expectations of what life is like. Y'all, we are called to reenact the dying and rising of Jesus in our daily lives as we suffer, as we cling to him, as we are delivered. And so I leave you with this. What do you do with your moments of hopelessness? Do you turn to the one to whom you belong and to whom you worship, even in fear, and cry out, Lord, save me? Or do you toss things overboard and give up hope of salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you And we realize that so often we see these patterns in our life and we hate them and we blame them on other things 
we get mad at you for them. We lose control and we grasp at straws and we panic. We let fear overwhelm us and cripple us. We condemn with our understanding of justice and when that doesn't happen, we're mystified and angry. All these things, Lord, we confess to you and we ask that you would remind us again and again that if we are believers, we are united with Christ. We are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that means we get to be united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Oh Lord, would you change the way we look at life? Would you help us see that these patterns of struggle and sorrow, they don't just go away. No, they bind us closer and closer to you. And for that, we thank you. For that, we give you praise and glory. But we also ask for your grace as we face them. Because we know it will be challenging. But we know that you're at work in it. That that is part of your mission for us. Lord, help us see that and weirdly rejoice in those times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.